from the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. Keeping kids safe is one of our greatest responsibilities as adults. But what if the main tool we use to protect children is actually preventing everyone from getting the resources they need? Every state in the country has mandatory reporting laws that require professionals such as teachers, coaches, nurses, and more to report any suspected or observed instances of child abuse or neglect to the state. Now, while this sounds logical and even a really good thing, its application has effectively made a surveillance apparatus out of educators, healthcare, and social workers that leaves the families most in need of help afraid to ask for it, at the risk of becoming the center of an investigation. The pitfalls of mandatory reporting are especially evident in Pennsylvania. In the wake of the Jerry Sandusky child abuse scandal, Pennsylvania lawmakers passed sweeping reforms, expanding mandatory reporting and the definition of child abuse to include low-level neglect a difficult-to-define term that often targets and punishes circumstances that arise from poverty. Since reforms were implemented in 2014, reports have skyrocketed. But recent studies have shown that this increase has not turned up any additional victims of child abuse, but rather overstretched the system. Of the one million calls over five years since the reform policy— 800,000 calls were in regard to low-level neglect allegations stemming from poverty, and 9 in 10 of those were dismissed following traumatic housing searches and family questioning that disproportionately target Black and brown families. This targeting leaves parents looking for help and support vulnerable to the family regulation apparatus, a punitive system rife with bias that often exacerbates inequities and trauma instead of alleviating problems. April Lee, Director of Client Voice at Philadelphia's Community Legal Services, knows this side of the system well. As a Black mother navigating the aftermath of her own trauma, she thought she was just seeking help from her doctor, but what unfolded from there was everything but help. So a few years back, i say 2014, I was raped and went through a whole bunch. Um, After being raped, I was going back and forth to the doctors because they had me on like all types of medication to prevent disease, to prevent pregnancy. And, but I had just recently, my baby girl was under a year old at the time that this happened to me. And going back and forth to the doctors, I was struggling. I was struggling to get up every day to, you know, make sure everything around the house was handled. So I went to my doctor and the doctor, of course, how's it going? How's the medication? And the medication that they had me on, which is like a type of prep medication to prevent disease, um, really did a number on my stomach. So I was like puking and like going through all of these physical things on top of the mental things. And the doctor asked, you know, how are you doing with everything? And I told him I was struggling. 
I was honest, you know, I'm really struggling. It's a struggle to get up every day. It's a struggle to care for my children right now. My mental is like all over the place. And instead of, you know, connecting me to resources or any of that, that warranted an investigation that eventually led to my children being removed out of my care. It's just so horrible and so punishing to have something so horrific as rape happen to you. That in itself is just honestly very difficult to describe the pain and suffering that comes from that. And to then go to your doctor, who's really supposed to be there to help support you both and holistically support you through this time and admit vulnerability or admit concern for yourself and your family and then to have that weaponized against you maybe my doctor thought they were helping you know maybe i don't have anything for her here so let me call to try to like get this family resources maybe that went through their mind but what most people don't understand is what happens on the other side of that phone call you know you have a system, especially with mandate, mandated reporting, your license is on the line. So you have a lot of people like I've rather cover my own behind. Better safe than sorry. And like that better safe than sorry type mentality is destroying families. And you don't see that on the other side because you made the phone call, right? Like my hands is clean. I did my duty. I did my job. And you're not seeing the devastating effects that that phone call might have. Right. And it also allows for our implicit bias to run amok, right? To, To really like play such a huge role in the system because it's up to the discretion of an individual. This experience leads your family to become part of the larger family regulation system. What does that apparatus look like, that kind of surveillance look like? Yeah, like from the start, it's very um, invasive. And even if You know, you talked about those countless investigations that ended up going nowhere, but they made that phone call. You know, you have someone come into your home, flush your toilet, run your sink, make sure you have hot water running. They may take pictures of your children. They may talk to the children individually, ask like really um, intense questions. You just like really have to open up your entire family to be scrutinized, you know, under a microscope. You can be dragged back and forth to court every three months and given a case plan, which they call like a single case plan for your family, you know, for you to meet these objectives and to comply, you know, not to see whether or not is your family 100% okay? Do you need anything? You need to comply. And if you don't comply, then you risk losing your family for the rest of their lives. You risk losing the rights to your children. Your children lose their rights to you, to your, their grandparents, their siblings, and so forth and so on. It's very, it's very punitive. I had to have supervised visits for almost two years straight 
once every first it started off every other Sunday for two hours and then it went to every Sunday and I did that for two years straight um, visiting my children in a room full of other families guards walking through metal detectors all of that and you gotta try to make it as best as you can. You mentioned that upon receiving the custody of your children back that you dealt with a lot of anxiety and that it that it was this like this time period was really damaging for your family even in reuniting that it was it had left a huge scar. Can you talk a little bit about what that has left you with? Although they've been home for years now, I still deal with the residual effects. I still deal with the children having depression and, you know, anxiety. It's like so many different, like, it's just alive and well in my house. The day-to-day, not only that I had to help myself, you know, build up and maintain my traumas and heal from my traumas, I got to constantly help my children and build them up to heal from their traumas. They were separated, something that they've never been. So not only did you lose your mother that very second, you lost your brother and sister that very second, you know, for the first time in your lives. So like they had to, you know, I would play stupid games, <laughs> right? And just to get them to build a relationship sibling relationship because at that point once they all came back they all in essence were single children they was like I'm the only child (laughs) right so I had to like nurture them to have those relationships to understand what siblings is like to to share to not to you know fight constantly because they were yeah only children so it's something that I still deal with to this day, my daughter, um, and I always share that, and it's, it's 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 painful. You know, not long ago, she told me, she said, "Mom, you abandoned me." They told me you abandoned me, and so far from the truth, you know. But this little girl who was under two, remember that day that she got taken. And remember the words that someone told her that your mother abandoned you because I wasn't mentally there. April's story is one of remarkable resilience in the face of a system failing families. While Pennsylvania's mandatory reporting system has faced particular scrutiny, departments of Child Protective Services across the country face similar issues with mandatory reporting. To give us a better sense of the growing recognition of mandatory reporting's ineffectiveness and where the ACLU stands in this work, I spoke with Anjana Samanth, senior staff attorney at the ACLU's Women's Rights Project. April gave us a vivid picture of her experience and the devastation that this expansion of mandatory reporting has wreaked in Philadelphia. 
as this story gains traction, what lessons do you hope that the rest of the country draws from Pennsylvania's mandatory reporting expansion? The first thing would be that prioritizing reporting um, and investigations over addressing the causes for those reports really misses the point. You know, if if we're really, really concerned about the well-being of children, we have to take into account the negative impact that the child welfare system, starting from investigation up, you know, to family separation, um, the negative impact that the system has on children and parents. And so in terms of policy, this means we should be redirecting our focus and resources to addressing what sometimes may be, in fact, prompting these reports. Like, for instance, a parent's lack of access to childcare or inadequate preventative health care or um, the need for uh, addiction recovery services. The second lesson um, that I would hope jurisdictions draw from this and people see um, is that mandatory reporting is just counterproductive. Um, and, and already numerous jurisdictions have found that just increasing the number of people who are required to make reports of suspected maltreatment doesn't actually help catch cases where the most vulnerable children are or the cases that have slipped through the cracks in the past. And the way I think of it is um, looking for the needle in the haystack is hard enough doubling or tripling the size of the haystack in the hopes that you'll find maybe two needles or three needles simply doesn't make sense. Mm. The last thing I I would want folks to think about, um, the majority of uh, states and county or counties in the U.S. include in the definition of neglect some kind of catch-all language like neglect includes acts or the failure to act in ways that create potential harm to a child's safety or well-being. And the number of ordinary and innocuous scenarios that fit into that definition is mind-numbing. So, you know, you this would, something that would fall into this is um, if I were in a playground with my child and I turned around and was talking to a friend and then my kid fell down off the monkey bars, right? Certainly, that was my turning away, and the accident fits the definition of act or failure to act in a way that creates potential harm. So, you know, combine this really broad definition of neglect with the lack of information that people who are mandatory reporters have about what their requir- uh, required duties are. And then finally, kind of the CYA approach that both people and institutions like schools have of erring on the side of reporting because of a fear that they'll end up legally liable um, or, or you'll have a scathing headline. But, you know, even, even given the best of intentions, um, this broad definition of neglect just doesn't further child safety. It really feels like the perfect storm in in the ways that you mention. Anytime in law we are dealing with vague 
language. That opens up so much room for interpretation and then also so much room for bias because so much of how we interpret material is steeped in our own personal experience and our own biases. It does feel like this amalgamation of little bits and pieces that you laid out that really amount to this very difficult. It's really hard after you hear that to think that it could be an effective system based on what you just described. Is this how it's operating in most states currently? Um, Obviously, we're focusing on Pennsylvania in this instance, but are we seeing other states have this kind of expanded system? Are they questioning their systems? What do the trends look like across the country? You know, I'd say in terms of, um, you know, government agencies that are looking at this uh, and and critically questioning, not as many as I I would want. You know, I think for one, um, there's the fear factor, right? People are afraid that if mandatory reporting is eliminated, suddenly um, there's, there's no way to to really protect kids. And, you know, for one thing, it's really interesting to watch what's coming out of it, uh, their investigation or kind of self-reflection is Colorado. They introduced and created a hotline about six or seven years ago to make it easier for people to report their suspicions of abuse and neglect. So really, again, expanding who can, forget even is required, um, to make these reports. After the adoption of this hotline, you saw a huge jump in reports of suspected abuse or neglect. But um, as they found uh, in 2022, 71% of these reports were screened out, meaning that agencies didn't look into them, And then of the ones that were investigated, um, only five or six percent were actually substantiated after an investigation. I think there are people who continue to think that there's a way that the child welfare system is the only way to really connect people with supportive services. Is that true, though? It doesn't have to be. Um, There are possibilities such as rather than um, requiring reporters or routing all calls into the child welfare system, maybe create an off-road and a ramp for reports that will go to maybe um, a housing agency, right? Or that will go to, to the extent that there may be record-keeping requirements in order to get federal funds, you can still do that, but keep those records separate from child welfare agency records. I think that gets a little, like, questionable if that's actually an effective solution when nowadays, you know, there is so much database cross-sharing and, and interconnectivity. But And I think the other problem really is, is like, there's so many different um, problems with the child welfare system that when you're like, okay, so let's, let's now give child welfare caseworkers the ability to 
help someone get a Section 8 voucher, or let's require them to expend, um, you know, you know, more than just quote unquote reasonable efforts to to help a family. Maybe that'll help. Maybe that'll get us there. But then you have these other problems that come from different aspects of the system, right? Like I said, you know, you still have multiple law enforcement agencies and social service agencies that share information, which may be for, you know, good intentions, but then you really make it difficult for folks to ever get out of kind of this family regulation cycle. You mentioned database sharing and the work at the ACLU has been involved in, at least recently, in the state of Pennsylvania as it pertains to child welfare, the family regulation system at large, has centered in on databases and data sharing and other kinds of data practices. What can you tell us about the stuff that we've been digging into at the Women's Rights Project uh, around this issue? Yeah, so we started looking at a predictive analytics tool called the Allegheny Family Screening Tool, which is operated in um, Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, since about 2016 in different kinds of iterations. And, you know, admittedly, we did get the cooperation of the county, and they did provide us with a lot of information about um, how the tool was built. There's also to their credit, definitely a lot of information already publicly available. Um, you just have to be able to decipher it. Um, it. But we got information about how the tool was built, what data went into it, what impact it had. And, and the tool is used to help screening workers decide whether or not to send in a report for investigation or just close it at the outset. And one of the concerns certainly that we've had is that this type of tool, which has also been in place and developed for other um, parts of the country or other jurisdictions in the country, is that they, in order to kind of build a way to figure out what are the conditions or circumstances that are associated with bad outcomes, they pull information from other government databases like criminal legal system. Um, in Allegheny, they do use the juvenile probation system records. Um, at one point, they used uh, public benefits um, databases like who applied for uh, um, SNAP benefits. They did discontinue that, but other jurisdictions do use that. Um, and so... It's like you you can't get away from your past, right? That's almost always going to keep haunting you and keep limiting the way you are viewed. And if we want to think about this in terms of kind of constitutional or, or really legal terms, but can interfere with the ability of you getting a really individualized um, you know, assessment and an individualized treatment from the powers that be. 
And so to the extent that there were racial disparities in the past, to the extent that um, government systems were really pulling in punitive systems, were pulling in people facing poverty, people experiencing mental health crises, using those databases to try to predict when um, the agency will intervene in the future, it's it's creating a cycle, a, a repetitive cycle. Anything else that you want to add about what we're what we're doing and why we why this is an issue for us even at you know at all? So one of the priorities of the ACLU Women's Rights Project has been fighting how government policies punish women, how gender stereotypes consciously or not, continue to drive policy and law. And in the child welfare system, whether a parent is reported for, investigated for, or even found, um, you know, as in fact having put their children at risk, is through these notions of who a good or fit mother or father is and how they're supposed to act. And Child welfare's response is one that often just reinforces gendered expectations, racialized notions, class-based assumptions about what good parenting is and how parents ought to act. And, you know, getting into this work, you start to see just how many similarities there are between the child welfare system and a policing culture. And and that's why people involved who have been through parents, kids, former foster youth, really started calling the child welfare system as a system of regulating families or of policing families, right? And so... We at the Women's Rights Project are really interested in and committed to, you know, kind of curbing the government's ability to um, impair or trample on civil liberties and civil rights through the child welfare system. And really, you know, the child welfare system in a lot of ways is quite behind the criminal legal system in terms of what rights you have, how much people know about what rights they have, and whether they really can enforce them. So one of the things as as litigators that we're looking to do is make connections between folks who are pushing for policy change, people who are impacted with constitutional protections, legal requirements that we can help create by pushing judges, by pushing case law, so that it is more protective of children and parents. Um, Because there is a recognition that this is, in fact, an intrusion into family decision-making, that this is very much an intrusion into the home, physically the home, right? When your home is searched by child welfare workers, but really creating safeguards to protect against government overreach. I mean, I, I definitely see work in the child welfare system as, as a core 
just basic ACLU bread and butter civil liberties fight. As the ACLU ramps up its efforts to address the harms of mandatory reporting, it joins local partners like Community Legal Services in Philadelphia, where April works on behalf of families navigating the system. April gave us some insight into her work as director of Client Voice and the concrete solutions she believes we need today. It's extremely cool, the work that you are doing. Um, I want to talk about community legal services and your role as a peer advocate and later director. After the system treated you this way, you could have easily said, I'm done. This has been the worst part of my life. I don't want to ever have to think or deal or talk or engage with any of this ever again. But instead, you decided to do it in your day job. What was the motivation for you? Because there's too many people that's saying I'm done. You know, I got to the point to where I couldn't sit around and just constantly watch injustice. After I went internally and like really, when I say I did the internal work, you know, and really like build up my strength, I seen what was unjust and what was unfair. And I said, okay, what, you know, throw out the window because so many people, well, you're one person, (laughs) you know? No, throw that out the window. One person has the ability to change the world. And it goes back to me telling you people thought I was crazy when they said, well, April, what you going to do? And this is really early on. And I said, I want to change the world. And they said, well, that's, you know, kind of arrogant. Like, that's, you know, that's you're out of your mind, right? And I said, no, because someone changed mine. And it only takes one person to change someone else's life. And that person that changed my life, in turn, has changed my children's life, in turn, has changed every life that I have touched, Every family that I help keep together, every person that I guide towards treatment, those people is going to help somebody else. And in essence, we have that ability to change the world, to to really send ripples, because it's always been just one. I wanted to live my life to be that one. You know, I sit on sidewalks, I sit on stoops, I go into the trenches of Kensington, whatever I need to do to meet my client where they're at. Like, that's the human part. That's what I believe is needed. Like, meet you where you at. I'm not going to force you to change. I'm just listen. I'm I'm a listening ear. I'm a shoulder. I'm going to connect you with resources. And our clients, you know, farewell. Because of that, we have social workers and paralegals and the attorneys. So no one is working alone. No one is on an island by themselves. And we can 100% wrap around families. I mean, for me, it's been a, a dream come true. It's traumatic and tiresome and like burnt out you can become in this process of, you know, fighting against this Goliath of a system is still so worth it for me. I can't sit aside any longer and say, well, that's someone else's problem because that's how we got here in the first place. 
And so to get a little bit more specific about community legal services, you know, it's a nonprofit that provides resources, including legal representation to parents accused of neglect. You are the director of Client Voice. How did that come about? How did Client Voice become a department, a division of this nonprofit? What do you think it offers? How can other community organizations learn from what you are doing? And throughout that, like my peer parent advocate role, not only did I do the individual piece, but I ended up, you know, doing national work on policy reform, you know, law reforms and mm-hmm. changing practice and all of that. And, you know, community legal services seeing that, you know, not once did they stop me. I, I would have swore I would have been fired by now the way I speak out, right? <laughs> But they didn't. If anything, they like doubled down and said, you know, let's continue to share power and made me a director, you know, the first of its kind again. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not an attorney, you know, and that's that was unheard of. So I was the first in my organization and not be an attorney (laughs) put in that position. So. It's definitely sharing power with the community that you serve. Like you can't continue to serve the community or say you're serving a community and not have community input, not have lived experience at the table. Our issues with the laws and policies include mandated reporting. The issue was you didn't have the people at the table. You decided for the people what they needed. You decided what you thought they needed. And in turn, you caused so much harm, Mm. you know, move away from that. And they've really given me the opportunity to pull in community, like to pull in voice. I'm like always strategic, like, oh, we need this person here. We need to do this. We need to do that. And not once throughout the years. And I'm telling you, I'm like, I think outside the box and I'll be like, yeah, I want to do A, B, and C. They'd be like, oh, that's a lot, April. And but they'd be like, okay, let's try to, you know, let's try to make this happen. But I'm never shut down. So as we wrap up here, I'm really just interested and in, we've discussed the impacts. We've discussed the mechanics and the impacts of the mandatory reporting system. What do you think needs to change? What needs to happen in Philadelphia? And what needs to happen then across the country? What do you want to see? First and foremost, like more high quality legal representation. I always say that. Like no family, excuse me, should just have an attorney. Like no family should. It's you know, attorneys do do their thing in court and they might not have the necessary time to go day to day. You know, might not have what our office have as far as social work paralegal support, peer parent support. We really need to look into that and expand that nationally, you know, just to imply justice, like really to help families. If we're saying that our mission is to help families, to save children, then to save the children, you must save the parents. Do away with mandated reporting. And it's not that, you know, people are still going to have 
the opportunity to use discretion and to call in the child line if they see abuse and like if they really recognize neglect, they will still have that opportunity, even if you did away with mandated reporting. The problem with mandated reporting is you you know, you you tie their licenses to this phone call. If we're really aiming towards helping families and individuals look at some of the poverty issues and give them tangible resources. The data is out there, even the data on housing, you know, 30% of families can be reunified today if their parents have a, had a home. Data is out there about the harm of separation, the harms of, you know, foster care, Black children is aging out. The data is out there. You know, we have to listen and stop creating something that, that parallels you know, the prison system and foster care, you know, you got to stop. April, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. You're just really special. I think you're really special and the world needs more Aprils in it. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time to share your story, to speak with us today. And we've all been very blessed and very served by, by you sharing with us today. No problem. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, we've got a new series and we need your help. We're looking for stories on how you are showing up in your community. Maybe you're registering people to vote or volunteering at your school's LGBTQ alliance. We want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 212-549-2558. That's 212-549-2558. Or you can email us at podcast at aclu.org. We want to feature you in an upcoming episode. Until next week, keep showing up.